Calvary Baptist Church of Washington, D.C. Is a, is a historically significant church in, in our country, though I honestly wouldn't encourage anybody to attend there anymore, but uh, it's still there. It was founded in 1862, and uh, around the turn of the 20th century, around the ni- 1900, right in there, uh, the pastor was a guy named Dr. Samuel Green. And when Dr. Green was the pastor, uh, when new people joined the church, the, the standard operatory procedure was, um, sorry, did I click that? Not yet. The standard operatory procedure was people would come up at a cross, apparently at the front of their church, and people would stand under the cross, and, um, and new members would just be introduced to the rest of the congregation. And one time, there were three new members up there, and one of them was uh, the Honorable Charles Evans Hughes. You ever hear of Charles Evans Hughes? He had been the governor of New York, and he moved to Washington, D.C. because he was a new Supreme Court justice. He eventually would be the United States uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice. And there he was, uh, joining this church, and with him was a, a Chinese immigrant, and then uh, a single gal who made her, her, she subsisted by washing other people's clothes. And those three were the, the new members in this church. And on that day, Dr. Samuel Green, um, here's what he said. These three were standing at the, at the foot of the cross. And he said, my friends, I will have you note that at the cross of Jesus Christ, the ground is level. I love that line. Because what, what he was getting at is, is the blood of Jesus Christ is so powerful. It makes, it makes brothers out of kings and slaves. Not because it lowers the honorable Charles Evans Hughes anywhere, but because it, the blood of Christ raises every person to a son, a, a son or a daughter of God. A, a co-heir with Jesus Christ. And there's no height higher available to humanity than that. The ground is level at the cross of Christ. I love that. It's one reason I love today's passage from the book of Matthew that we're going to read in a minute. You can find it if you have a Bible. Turn to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9. It's a story that I think illustrates Jesus' heart for leveling the playing field, so to speak. It's the story of Jesus inviting to become a disciple a man named Matthew. He's called Matthew in this book. I believe he's the author of the book we're studying. He's called by the name Levi in the other Gospels. It wasn't unusual for a first century Jew to, to have two names, a Hebrew one and a Greek one. Matthew is his Greek name. Levi was apparently his Hebrew name. Um, and this is the only story that Matthew figures in significantly. In the rest of the Gospels, he just operates as part of the Twelve, the closest group of Jesus' disciples. And what's notable about Matthew, then, is not what he did after he became a disciple, but really what's notable about Matthew is who he was before he became a disciple. Matthew slash Levi was a tax collector. And we've talked about this before, but tax collectors were 
probably the most hated segment of first century Jewish society. They were seen as sellouts. They were traitors. They were the anti-Robin Hoods. They robbed from the poor to give to the rich. Right? They robbed from the, they extorted money from their countrymen to support the hated Romans and to make themselves wealthy. Everybody hated these guys. That Jesus um, would extend an invitation, unsolicited. When we read this, you'll notice Matthew doesn't ask to become a disciple. Jesus just invites him. This would have been nothing short of scandalous when it happened. Especially considering, it hasn't been very long ago in the book of Matthew, it's been several sermons for us, but up in chapter 8, verse 19 and 20, there's a scribe who came to Jesus and asked to sign up. I'll follow you anywhere. This is a scribe, part of the religious elite. And Jesus was rude to that guy. And then a couple paragraphs later, he walks up to a tax collector and asks him to follow. And so on the surface, or maybe this is kind of a a play in two acts. Act one is Jesus calling this tax collector. And in the original audience, if they understood anything in this story, would have understood this. If the grace of God, if God's mercy, if God's love can extend to tax collectors, then it can extend to me too. That's sort of act one. But the second act teaches us, or it's going to teach us, that there's stuff sometimes in people's hearts that sort of holds the love of God at bay. There's stuff that can hang out in people's hearts. Resentment and pride and and things like that that can keep us from accepting the love of God that is so freely offered to anybody. And so this morning, what I want you to do as we we study this is is try to find yourself in in this passage. Either somebody who is unsure of God's love or acceptance or... This is a good place to sort of check ourselves and see if if we have some stuff in our hearts that the Pharisees in the story have in their hearts because it's it's almost Jesus kryptonite. Right? It doesn't make Jesus weak, it just makes weak his influence through us. So if we've got some of that in there and it's really easy to have, we probably ought to Find that out. Let's read our passage before uh, we study in about it, any about it. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. This is the New American Standard Bible, and it reads this way. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed Jesus. And then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came. Many. And they were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. 
But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, or mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. That's the story of the call of Matthew. Matthew is called uh, in verse 9. Jesus sees him sitting in a tax booth. And, and what that is, is, we know that they're in Capernaum. And at the edge of Capernaum, on the main road, or the tax booth could be like on a dock, um, if somebody, um, like a pier. But wherever goods are brought into a town, um, there would be taxes assessed on that stuff that's going to be sold. That price would be passed on to consumers like our sales tax is today. And and Matthew is in a booth and that's what his job would have been. Jesus sees him there and and he gives Matthew slash Levi the same invitation that the other disciples who were called in this book got. Just two words, follow me, come get behind me. Um, Peter, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, James and his brother John, they were in in their boat. Jesus gave the same invitation, follow me. Matthew wants us to know, even though I was a tax collector, I got the same invitation the other nicer guys got. I think that's significant. And now between verse 9 and verse 10, there had to be, as this happened in real time, there had to be a significant gap of time. Because in verse 9, they're on the edge of town, and Jesus invites Matthew to follow. Matthew's response is he got up and became a full-time follower of Jesus. But all of a sudden, very next sentence, the scene changes, and all of a sudden we're, we're looking inside Matthew's house where Matthew is having something of a dinner party, with Jesus as the main guest, but with other guests invited. So there, there had to be a gap of time. Matthew slams these things together on purpose. We, we read about this in some of the other Gospels as well. So here's what has happened. Tax collector Matthew, who knows every Jew hates his guts, gets invited, accepted to be a follower of Jesus, and he is so excited that the ground is level with Jesus. Here's Jesus, he's from God, maybe Matthew already believes him, he's the Messiah, we don't know what he believes at first, but he just knows in Jesus, like Jesus will accept anybody, if he'll accept me, he'll accept anybody, and so he he gets so excited, he wants his friends to come meet Jesus too, and so he has a party and he invites his, his friends, but listen, he invites his real friends, not his new churchy friends. He invites his real friends. And this is not just any group of friends. Matthew is a card-carrying member of the TCNS club, the tax collectors and sinners. And I, I mentioned tax collectors, the, the, maybe the most hated members of Jewish society. And this other group, simply called sinners, is a, is a, is a designated group. Of folks, this is not people who you know accidentally say bad words when they hit the, the themselves with a hammer and maybe cheat in Monopoly. This is not them. Okay, uh, Craig Blomberg is a professor of the New Testament out at the seminary in, in Denver, and in his commentary, New American Commentary on Matthew, he says that this designation of sinners designated these people, Matthew's other friends who weren't tax collectors. 
as a particularly grievous group of sinners. The most criminal and disreputable types of people in society. This is like a prison ministry for people who haven't got put in prison yet. Right? This is the, nobody thought these were fine, upstanding citizens. This is the worst of the worst. That's the guest list at this party. That's what this banquet is about. And here's why, here's why Matthew, I think, takes verse 9 and puts it immediately with verse 10. I don't know what happened, how long Jesus or Matthew followed Jesus before he had this party, but here's what he wants us to know when he writes his book. I followed Jesus, and I immediately invited my friends to meet him, my real friends. I think Matthew wants us to know part of following Jesus is inviting other people to meet Jesus. Part and parcel of the same thing. Matthew is so encouraged that in Jesus, God accepts me. That he wants his friends to know the ground's level here. I've met the king, guys. Hey, you guys, I've met the king. And he invites people into his kingdom. And we, you don't get into his kingdom by being socially acceptable. That ship has sailed for us. We're not, we're not going to be that. And we don't get into his kingdom even by being behaviorally obedient. You get into the kingdom simply by getting to know the king. And you guys, he will accept even us, even if nobody else will. That's this party. And I think it's awesome. But not everybody in town did. Because in verse 11, we read that uh, there are some people called Pharisees who saw that Jesus is in, it said reclining at table. That's just the way they laid down to, to eat. This, it's a word for intentionally being together with publicly someone. Eating with someone in this culture, reclining at table means it's formal. This is a, a picture of acceptance. And the Pharisees, uh, I don't think we have to picture them like staring in the windows or anything like this. It was a pretty open society and it's probably this party, many tax collectors and sinners there. So picture like a biker gang and a bunch of tax collectors. They're all over Matthew's house and the Pharisees, they see this is going on and they see that Jesus is, he's not just dropping by, he's reclining at table. He's accepting this group. And they can't wrap their heads around what they know is going on there. So they, uh, they call some of Jesus' disciples maybe over to the edge of the, the courtyard. And, so, and they ask this question. Why does your teacher eat with people like this? Why does your, eat, your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because it's that sign of intentional association, togetherness, relationship. Here's what they're having trouble with. How can your teacher claim to be from God, but also relate to people that everybody knows are are criminals, are are bad people? You see, they know 
that God is a holy and righteous God and sin separates people from God. They know that, and it's true. And Jesus is challenging their ideas about what makes somebody righteous, what makes someone good enough for God to accept. They know that sin has to be dealt with before people can relate to God. And they know that no one in that dinner party has done the things that the Old Testament said had to be done to allow somebody to relate to God. But more importantly, they have done those things. See, what Jesus is doing inside is an attack on their righteousness. Because they've done what needs to be done to be considered right. We're righteous, and here's, here's the receipt. Here's what they've done. Their righteousness is dependent upon strict religious observance. They've gone to the temple. They've done the sacrifices. They've seen the priest. They've gone to the holy place, seen the holy man, and did the things he said to do for me to be okay with God. We've done that. Nobody in Matthew's party had. They wouldn't have been allowed to set foot in the temple. Not only that, after we've done those things, part of their righteousness depends on separateness from people like Matthew and his friends. Not only have we done the religious things that it takes to be righteous, we've avoided all the bad things those guys do. We've done what's supposed to be done. We've avoided what's not supposed to be done. That's what makes us righteous. So how can your teacher, how can Jesus claim to be from God and be relating to, be friends with, associate with people who haven't done the right things and who have done the wrong things? They can't wrap their head around it. They've got no framework to make sense of that. How can he justify this? How can he explain this? It's an attack on my righteousness. Well, Jesus hears about their question. And he comes outside personally to answer. Verses 12 and 13, most of it is Jesus answering this question. You guys want to know why I eat with tax collectors and sinners? I will tell you why. Most of it is that answer. In the middle of it is something I'm going to skip today, and I just want to tell you that I'm skipping it. Um, Jesus also issues a challenge. He gives them a book report. I want you to go and learn something. Our whole sermon next week is on that. Okay, um, So I won't skip it. We're just not going to do it this morning. But here's what Jesus says. You want to know why I eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verses 12 and 13, Jesus says, Those who are healthy don't need a doctor. Sick people need a doctor. And then he tells them, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Jesus loved to say things that could be understood more than one way. He loved it. He did a lot. And he's he's doing it right here. I think I know what the Pharisees would have understood Jesus to be saying. uh, And they were wrong. Here's what I think they understand Jesus to be saying. Hey, I want to know how come you can eat with, can relate to people like that. And he comes out and says, well, I mean, 
healthy don't need a doctor. The sick need a doctor. Here's what they would have understood. Jesus is saying, those people inside that party have the sickness, which is sin. They're the unrighteous who need, and he's saying he's the doctor that has the cure for sin. Which is true. But they also would have understood Jesus to be saying, well, and you guys, I mean, you don't need the sin doctor because you're what? You're righteous. Thank you. That was good. You're righteous. That's how I know I'm being clear. When the three-year-olds start giving the right answer, I know I'm being clear. Um, They're righteous. Here's what they think Jesus is saying. Sick people like Matthew and his friends, sinful people like Matthew and his friends are the ones that need the sin doctor, and I'm the sin doctor, and I came for them. They also would have understood Jesus to be saying, but you guys don't need a sin doctor because you're righteous. Now, they don't like that answer, even though that's what they think Jesus is saying. That would be flattering, don't you think? If, if you thought Jesus said, man, you are so awesome that you don't even need a, a Savior, that would kind of be flattering. But they're not flattered. They don't like that answer at all. And I'll explain why next week. But for now, this morning, I want you to know that's not what Jesus was saying at all. It's not what Jesus was saying at all. And we can use his words to prove that. You don't have to take my word for for this. You can take his. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, which has been a lot of sermons for us, but it hasn't been very long in the book of Matthew. Uh, It ended in chapter 7, so it hasn't been very long. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made very clear that we cannot meet behavioral standards to the point where God considers us to be righteous. Maybe the biggest point of the Sermon on the Mount is if you think you can be cool with God based on your goodness, you are so wrong. You can't be wronger. Jesus just preached a whole sermon where he made perfectly clear there is no one righteous. Here's how he did it. He used the Old Testament that these guys think they keep. They think they keep the Old Testament. They don't. And Jesus shot holes in that idea by saying things like this, if you remember these. He said stuff like, you have heard it said this, but I say this. And what he did is he he would pull out a commandment from the Old Testament. And he'd say, you've always thought you're righteous if you did this, but I'm going to tell you, you're not even close. Um, He started this way. He said, uh, you think that, that just because you haven't murdered someone, you have kept the sixth commandment. Sixth commandment says, thou shalt not, what? You, thou shalt not murder. You think, hey, that one I'm good on. Right? I have never killed anybody, so at least on that one I am innocent before God. Jesus, now I'm going to tell you, if you've walked around with anger in your heart towards somebody, if you hold that grudge against somebody, if you've ever retaliated with angry words when somebody hurt you. You are guilty enough, according to that commandment, and these are Jesus' words, not mine, to, to deserve to be thrown into the fiery hell. Guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And Jesus says, okay, how about seventh, seventh commandment? Seventh commandment says, thou shalt not commit adultery. You might think, hey, I, that one I'm, I'm okay with. 
Never done that. Jesus says, au contraire, mon frère. He says, if you have ever looked at someone that you're not married to and had impure thoughts about that person, guilty enough for the fiery hell. If you've ever fantasized about how much better your life would be if you were married to that person instead of the person you're currently married to, guilty enough for the fiery hell. If you've, how about these? If you've ever failed to follow through on something you said you'd do, you're not righteous. Or just this one. At the end, he says, all you got to do, you want to keep the law, just love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you, every time, consistently, always take care of other people more than you take care of your... Come on. Nobody. There's no one righteous, not even one. You can find that in both the Old and the New Testament. Jesus just preached a sermon about that. So he's not telling these guys. I, you know, I'm, I'm only here for people who are real sinners, and you guys, you don't need me. He knows they're going to think that, but that's not what Jesus means. Here's what he means. I can only deal with sick people who know they're sick. Here's the thing about doctors. They can only help people who actually go to the doctor. Right? right there, I may live next door to the greatest physician on earth, but if I don't actually admit I'm sick and go see him or her, it's not going to make me any better. Right? Jesus is saying... Inside Matthew's house are people who at least some of them understand they're sick. And that's the only kind of patient I can see. And necessarily, Jesus is saying this, I will not force myself upon, or I will avoid, or maybe even I will reject those who think they are spiritually healthy those who consider themselves to be righteous. I got no part with them. The only people Jesus can't relate to are the people who think they don't need a relationship with Jesus. The only people Jesus can't save are people who think they're fine on their own. That's his point. And maybe, just maybe, in the biker gang inside Matthew's house, the, bi- the biker gang and the, the extortionists and the white-collar criminals and the worst of the worst, just maybe there's some other people like Matthew who understand. If God's ever going to relate to me, someone else is going to have to deal with my sin. I mean, I'm going to need some serious help or else I'm not getting in. Jesus says, that's my kind of crowd. That's my kind of crowd. Now, if there's people inside there who think, oh, you think you're better than me? I'm better than most of the good Jews I know. Jesus, well, sorry, I can't help you. The only people Jesus can't relate to are people who refuse to see their need to relate to Jesus. Now, that's the story. When does this stop being true? 
Most of, I think most of us here are probably, at least consider ourselves Christians. Most of us believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he did that for our sins, right? You believe that? When does it stop being true that Jesus relates to people, dines with people, communes with people who understand their sinfulness? When does that stop? It doesn't. It doesn't. And because that's true, I just think there's, there's three ways I would like to encourage you to apply this passage to your life. First one, most importantly, maybe you've never asked Jesus to come relate to you on a personal level, to save you from your sins. It could be for, an, for a couple of different reasons, either from the biker gang side or the Pharisee side. Maybe you always thought you were healthy enough. Maybe you thought, I'm better than most of the Christians I know. Maybe you thought, my good stuff that I've done outweighs the bad stuff. I've never killed anyone. I've never really hurt anybody. I'm a good person. See, that's, that's the Pharisees who don't think they need a physician. But they're sick. They're sick to death. Maybe you've never understood what Jesus explained, and I tried to explain to you about how he took the commandments and ratcheted up what it means to be obedient to them to the point where there is nobody good enough for God to accept based on their own righteousness. If you admit you need a Savior, you need Jesus, Jesus is like, when's supper? I'm coming over. I'll come into your life. We can start a relationship. Now, maybe you're on the other side. Maybe you're like my uncle. And I <laughs> kind of hope my uncle doesn't listen to these sermons because he's still alive. But my uncle told me one time, if God knows half the things I've done, he'll never let me in. You ever hear something like that? You ever think something like that? I'm too far gone. I'm too bad. I'm too awful. I'm too whatever. There's a special kind of pride in that. Where you think your sin is more powerful than God sacrificing his son for sin? Like, I mean, that's good enough to save other people from their sin, but come on. You're not too far gone. That's why Jesus called a tax collector and allowed him to invite all his real friends over the worst of the worst. Jesus blows that argument out of the water. You're not too far gone. Have you asked Jesus to be a part of your life, to be your life, to be in place of your sin? Listen, it's not the people with the fewest sins who are most acceptable to God. You know that? It is not the people with the fewest sins who are the most acceptable to God. It doesn't work that way. If it did, the Pharisees would be saved and the tax collectors and sinners would be doomed. It's the people who admit their need, in spite of however many sins they have, that admit that they haven't done enough. They've done too many bad things and not enough good things, and that's all of us. Have you asked Jesus to save you from your sin? You can do that today. Now for the rest of us. Just because you've done that, 
just because you, you, you know you need a Savior, you, you believe that what Jesus did at the cross is be under God's wrath to save you from your sins, doesn't mean this passage isn't for you and for me, because it is. Because the gospel is not just a way into heaven. It's a way of life. So, two applications for the rest of us redeemed folks. First, there are, we should be inviting real-life sinners to meet Jesus. Even that person you think that would never, oh man, they wouldn't have any interest. You never know. Jesus, or Matthew probably thought that too. Who do you know that needs to know Jesus? That's what Matthew did. I follow Jesus, so I invite people to meet Jesus. And then finally, and I want to camp on this one for just a minute before we, before we quit. There is never a point where it becomes healthy to stop admitting my sin. There's never a point. Like from an eternal perspective, Jesus says, it's kind of the point of his conversation with the Pharisees, I can't help you if you don't admit your sin. In some ways, do you know that's still true? That's still true today for saved folks? That thing you're struggling with, that you just, it's not going to get better till you admit it is sin. Confession and repentance is a part of the gospel. Ongoing, continual. Matthew's buddies in that house, Jesus would accept them where they were at, but he would not leave them there. They, they were going to have to do some things differently to relate to Jesus. Seeing my sin is still sin. That's important to my relationship with him. But listen, seeing my sin as sin is important to my other relationships also. In my marriage, as a parent, with my friends, at work. Um, I think too many Christians try to do this. I come to meet Jesus. I recognize eternally I have fallen short of the glory of God. I know I'm not perfect. I know I need a Savior. Jesus, please forgive me so you can get me into heaven. But then we go right back to a lifestyle that says, I do not admit when I am wrong. Let me give you the list of evidences why you are wronger than I am. Why I'm the right one here. You know what's wrong with my life? If everybody was just more like me around here, things would be better. Let me tell you what you need to fix so I can relate to you. You know what Jesus says when we're like that? Good luck with that, Captain Pharisee. I mean, real business. Jesus still can't enter into situations when we don't see sin as sin, when we refuse to own our part of problems. That's how he relates. He comes into situations where people see their part in the sickness. And when we just continually build the evidence that says, I'm innocent and they're guilty, Jesus says, I, you know, I'd love to help, but that's not what I do. I help sinners. I help sick people who know they're sick. And if all you want to do is build up your own righteousness, like I'm not in that business. Our need for the gospel, our need for Jesus never stops.
It just never stops. But the great thing is, he never stops being willing to come in. There's never a point where he says, nope, too late, not this time. Not this time. I'm sorry, Lonnie. I did it last time and the time before that, but nope, I'm done now. No. Every single time, all he needs, Lonnie, in this case, to do is admit, geez, I need some help here. Because look at what I'm doing. My pride, my pride keeps me from loving my wife. I've got this grudge and this anger. I try to control my kids into making me look good in the community. I can't do this. I need Jesus. Like, hey, scoot over. Make me a place at the table. I'm coming over for supper. He always will come set with You're not too sinful for him. Our problem is when we refuse to admit we're sinful. Would you bow your heads? Pray with me for a minute. Father God, I thank you for the gospel, for sending your son to forgive us from our sin on the very moment when we admitted that we needed a Savior. Lord, now that that's done, what we struggle with is living the gospel of continuing to not just understand in the big picture I'm not perfect, but to see my imperfections, my pride, my bitterness, my rebellion, my, my grudges, my, my anger that I'm carrying around in my heart, my lack of love, my lack of loving, loving my neighbor as myself. Lord, uh, Though there's stuff in our hearts that keeps you from working, don't don't leave us alone. Remember your people. Remember your promise, O oh God, that you would never leave us, that you would never forsake us, even in our sin, even in our darkness, Lord. We need you. Just put your hand of gentle discipline on us to help us see what we need to see. As, as sin, as our wrong, so that we can invite you in to a situation. And like you'll teach us next week, you desire mercy, not a sacrifice. Help us be that agent of mercy, of grace. But we've got to admit our sin and our part to do that. Lord, I just want to give you a minute with your people here. If, there, if there's something that you, that you want to press onto someone's heart this morning, that they need to confess either to somebody else or to you. I just pray you you do that, Lord. I thank you that your love never ceases. That we can't outsin your love for us, but it just gunks up our relationship to you and our relationships to others. So God help us have gospel hearts that confess sin and see a need for Jesus all the time. 
that you might be shown through our soft gospel hearts, Lord. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.